Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is made possible with the support of Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotelconnections.com Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com and the Boyd International Aviation Forecast Summit this October in Cincinnati. Visit AirlinesConfidential.com to attend at a reduced rate. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. He has never before in his life been wrong about anything until now. He's Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. We'll explain in a few minutes. That's right, right, Ben? Well, I don't know if that can be true. (laughs) Well, when I told him I was excited about the NFL opening this week, he said, you mean that big naval aviation training station in Nevada is opening for commercial service? It must be Allegiant. He's Seth Kaplan, NPR's here and now transportation analyst. Yeah, go Dolphins. I can explain that if needed to. (laughs) (laughs) Pushing back from the gate. This is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Today, we're going to talk about something an airline CEO said would never happen. And it's probably not the thing you're thinking of. And we'll talk about something else a lot of people probably never thought would happen. Change is hard. Change fees, on the other hand, are a hard habit to break. First, though, let's prepare for takeoff with the week's news. Ben, we've given American Airlines CEO Doug Parker a hard time in recent months for saying a few years back he thought U.S. Airlines would never again lose money. Never, of course, is a long time, and we all know how that prediction turned out. We also weren't the only people to notice that. But I haven't yet seen anybody else recall another CEO's never ever statement that has now turned out to not be true. Now, sure, Southwest Airlines CEO Gary Kelly probably isn't as sorry to be wrong about this prediction as Parker's. But for what it's worth, a little more than a decade ago, he said there were three airports in America Southwest would never serve. Chicago O'Hare, Dallas-Fort Worth, and Miami International Airport. The first two, still true for now. Uh, But sure enough, Southwest is preparing to launch service to two new airports, one of which is Miami. The other is Palm Springs in Southern California. And we should note that actually Southwest as a company, if not as a certificated air carrier, previously served Miami briefly after Southwest bought AirTran, which did serve Miami and continued serving it for a little while after the merger. Uh, But that went away long ago. Ben, in making the announcement, Southwest indicated Miami and Palm Springs are a play for leisure traffic, which is rebounding more quickly than corporate traffic. And what's interesting about that is that being from South Florida, I always think of Miami as a relatively business travel focused airport. And no question that's true compared to Fort Lauderdale, where Southwest already has a big presence. But I guess it makes sense that Miami International still gets a lot more inbound leisure traffic than most other airports around the country and world. What, what do you think is going on here? I think there's a couple things going on here, Seth. I mean, I know we're talking about Southwest, but you saw a week or so ago, United added these nonstop services from a few cities into Florida over flying their own hubs. Yeah. Saying that, look, we're going to put the airplanes where there is traffic right now. So part of it could be that trend, just Southwest saying, 
you know, we need to go where traffic is going. And if more people are going to Miami, maybe we need to go to Miami. There could be something deeper as well, though, which is Southwest now in its 50s as an airline isn't the Southwest that it was a long time ago. You know, it's it's lost um, a big portion of its cost advantage thanks to the fact that people in airplanes, as they get older, get more expensive. And other airlines have gotten a little more efficient. Now, that said, they're still lower cost than American United and Delta, but the gap is smaller. And they're not as low fare as they used to be. They bought their way into airports like Reagan National LaGuardia, which is also something the early or your younger Southwest never would have done. So in a way, this is kind of a trend you've seen some Southwest sort of chasing revenue as opposed to keeping costs down. That's the more maybe evil side of it. The simpler answer might be just like United, go where the traffic is. Yeah. And by way of explanation, I think a lot of listeners know this, but when you talk about costs, the reason Southwest avoided airports like Miami is because airports like Miami are more expensive than airports like Fort Lauderdale. Airports like San San Francisco, which Southwest uh, for a long time steered clear, more expensive than Oakland and, and so forth. I remember back when Southwest pulled the plug on Miami, which, as I said, it inherited from AirChan, I remember looking at the fare data and, and wondering about that decision because in the end, Ben, of course, what matters isn't just costs in a vacuum or revenue in a vacuum. It's the differential. And, and you know, Miami is more expensive. But AirTran, when I looked at the data, was getting meaningfully higher fares at Miami than they were getting at Fort Lauderdale. I flew from both of those airports to Atlanta. And so... I kind of wondered if that was Southwest being dogmatic about, well, you shouldn't serve Miami and not really saying, well, hey, yeah, it's expensive. But if we get the fares to more than cover the cost differential, then why not? And I'm sure a lot else went into the analysis. They were at the time still a rapidly growing airline with lots of opportunity cost. You know, if you send an airplane one place, you don't get to send it the other. Obviously now, very different story. They're just trying to keep their planes and their people productive. Uh, You know, I took a look at Americans Hubs. And Miami is one, uh, maybe no surprise here, where it has reduced service more than others. Basically, Charlotte and Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, which American has indicated are, are, are generally its most profitable hubs, are the ones where it has cut less than average. It's cut everywhere. But those, it's kind of cut by about a third, you know, less than half of what it was flying before COVID. And most of its other hubs, it's, it's cutting more. Miami is one where it has cut about two-thirds. And my first thought, Ben, was, well, but that's because Miami is more of an inter- international airport, right? So if just international in general is down, maybe that's just why. And maybe domestic isn't down by any more at Miami than it is at Charlotte. But it's just that there's a lot more international at Charlotte. But took a look in the Sirium schedule data. And sure enough, even if you just control for domestic, even if you say, what is American done with domestic service at all its hubs, Miami is down 59%. Again, that compares with something like 30% at both Charlotte and DFW. Maybe no big surprise there, because obviously if you cut a lot of the feed, right? I mean, a hub is a balance of flights feeding other flights. And so all the, if so much of the international is gone, then obviously a lot of the domestic that supports that is going to go away. But kind of interesting here that Southwest maybe smells a little bit of blood, uh, maybe senses that Americans giving it a little bit of an opportunity in Miami. Well, it's interesting. That might be the case too. 
Although Southwestern American have, I don't know if it's a Cold War or a uh, or a detente or what you might want to call it. Maybe neither of those, because you know they've been competitors for decades. Southwest started in Texas, right in Americans, you know, backyard really, and so. I don't know. It would seem to me Miami would be a strange place, a high cost airport for them to say, well, Americans leaving a void. So we'll go in now. There's always been space in Miami. And if Southwest had wanted to go there, they could have always gone there, gone, gone there, gone there. (laughs) It seems to me that uh, this has got to be more opportunistic about the time and where people are traveling. Yeah. Interesting also because they reduced early on in the COVID pandemic reduced Fort Lauderdale more than some other places. Uh, you know, they seem to feel like Fort Lauderdale was just really crowded, obviously big hubs there by just by spirit and uh, JetBlue as well. So maybe they would just rather take on a higher cost competitor uh, rather than those lower cost competitors. Uh, interesting move. We'll have to watch for this how this plays out. I want to watch what American actually does there. Again, they haven't said where they're going to be flying from Miami and Palm Springs. Uh, You you can only imagine though, that if the idea is to help people get to the sunshine, that it could be from points North, uh, perhaps first from there. I know they don't call them hubs, but the usual suspects, the Baltimore's and Chicago midways of the world in the case of Fort Lauderdale. That's right. (laughs) And some of the uh, busy airports in the West in the case of Palm Springs. Well, Ben, I'm sure glad no one has tape of you saying just a couple months ago that airlines would never get rid of change fees. Well, okay, I don't think you said never. But anyway, you were skeptical. And on the other hand, uh, I would look really smart right now if I had called you an idiot and said they would absolutely get rid of change fees, which I didn't say either. I said I thought they had to do something to stop incentivizing people to fly sick, but I wasn't sure what that looked like. Well, now we do know what it looks like. The elimination of most change fees At the four of the five largest U.S. airlines, that's United American Delta and Alaska, that previously charged those fees. Southwest, of course, famously never charged change fees. Ben, for anyone who believes this was inevitable, brilliant move here by United going first and getting credit for what certainly comes off as an incredibly consumer-friendly policy and and public health friendly one too. I remember how JetBlue got credit for going first with the mask mandate. So United gets the credit this time. Of course, the big difference between the mask mandate and the elimination of change fees is that the former didn't really cost anything and ultimately seemed to drive bookings. People became more confident in flying, whereas the latter, getting rid of these change fees, cost a lot. Well, you're right. And There's a lot on this, Seth. Part of it goes back to Southwest, who we were just talking about. If you look at United's network, where are they big? They're big in Chicago. They're big in Denver. They're big in California. They're big in Houston. Wait, am I saying United or Southwest? (laughs) The answer is (laughs) the answer is yes. I mean, they overlap with Southwest more than more than American or Delta do. And in an environment where everybody's fighting for a limited amount of traffic, they may have just said, enough is enough. We're not going to give Southwest this advantage anymore. And so it's interesting. I also think that United maybe has some wounds to heal uh, in Washington. 
the CARES Act money sort of came with sort of all these ideas of be more customer friendly and United who still sort of smarts a bit from the Dr. Dow thing and being very brash about not leaving middle seats empty and things like that. Maybe thought, well, it'll help us there. But I really think it is more, a little more about Southwest. The fact is that they're in competition with them more than American and Delta are in, in terms of their total network. And they're thinking about how do we not give up as many competitive advantages to them? Now, that said, I don't think you can say I was completely wrong when I said they won't get any change fees because they didn't get rid of them for basic economy fare. Basic economy, yep. Which in a way, if you want to be really nasty, you could say is almost regressive tax policy, right? You say that uh, that we're going to charge the people who either can't or won't you know, buy high fares this fee. <laughs> Right, and, uh, or or you could say, or you could at least say that it, that if the idea is public health, if the idea is making sure that nobody who's sick feels compelled to fly, that well, you didn't do that there, right? Yeah, no, that that's right, and also they didn't cancel them for long haul international either. So, right. you know, there's there are economics that support change fees. Of course, if I buy a ticket thirty days in advance. And then four days before the flight, say, I'd like to change this. Well, that seat has been not for sale for 26 days. And the airline only has four more days to sell it. And if they don't sell it in that time, the seat goes empty. So that loss is what the change fee pays for, essentially. And so I think the fact that they have saved change fees on basic economy fares to say, look, if you don't pay us that much, we can't afford to cover that revenue loss for you. And on long haul international, well, the, you know, the international carriers charge it. Southwest doesn't fly there. So maybe we can still get away with it there. Yeah. And if you look at the Smaller airlines in the U.S., as of now, I'm sure they're all looking at it, but as of the time we're recording this, they are still all charging the change fee in their policies. Now, of course, no airline is charging a change fee right now because of COVID. And every airline, you you know, as far out as March 2021 has said, you know, we're not charging change fees because there are fewer flights and we don't want to give you any reason not to buy now thinking you might be stuck with a ticket. But in terms of policy, you see smaller airlines have not, and lower cost airlines have not yet said we're getting rid of this forever. Now they're probably thinking about it and we may see some of those announcements at some point. But so I think that the, I think calling for the, for the death of change fees is a bit premature right now. Because there still are some offered by the big three uh, in where they are. And in terms of the total amount they collect, though, you know, where's that money going to go? The money they were collecting from change fees, is that going to go into higher fares? Or is it going to cut from their margin that they earn when they start making money again? That's the economic question they'll have to answer. I do think it's a real interesting policy. And the more I think of it, the more I think United was aiming right at Southwest and said, you're not going to get away with this when we're competing for business traffic anymore. I can match you on frequency Southwest. I can give the customers an upgrade to business class. I can give them a lounge. I can give them frequent fire programs that get them all over the world. I can get them a set of partners and I can give them assigned seats. You can't do that. 
So now the one thing for business travelers that you had as an advantage, which you made it easy for them to change, I'll just match that on you. Yeah. And they still hold on to those basic economy fares that are highly restrictive, as you said. You mentioned Dr. Dow and some of the things United has faced over the years, even during this pandemic. Don't forget they early on caught a lot of flack for being very inflexible when it came to refunds. Uh, requiring flight changes of six hours or more. You know, if they canceled your flight and then gave you a new schedule, if it didn't change by six hours or more initially, they weren't giving you your money back, whereas other airlines were more flexible. And now in this case, yeah, uh, no question. Going first on something that, uh, at least ostensibly, is quite customer-friendly and is customer-friendly. Oh, for sure, yeah. Varying degrees, yeah. Well, Delta, meanwhile, gets credit for something most of its competitors are apparently not going to be able to match. It's not going to furlough any flight attendants come October 1st. Now, Gary Leff, in his View from the Wing blog, had criticized me several days earlier for what he characterized as me making the argument that not blocking middle seats and thus bringing in more revenue in the short term could help avoid furloughs. He noted even then, before Delta's announcement, that the airlines poised to furlough the most people, United American, were not blocking middle seats. Now, look, if you go back and listen to what I said, I think it's clear I wasn't trying to establish cause and effect between blocking middle seats and furloughing employees. I simply said I could understand why a CEO of an airline that is furloughing lots of people would not want to have to explain why he's leaving any revenue on the table. Now, that said... Here we have Delta blocking middle seats into early 21 and not furloughing flight attendants. I mean, that's kind of what you root for, for both customers and employees. Well, I think that's exactly right, Seth. And Delta's been smart about a lot of things. And they're the third largest airline in the U.S. in terms of the amount of seats they put out there. But they, pre-COVID, were the most profitable airline. In fact, in the last full year of profitability, 2019 or so, Delta made a lot more money than American or United yeah. and didn't collect as much revenue, right? And Or collect as much revenue, but didn't fly as much as they did. So they have a little more room to make these kind of changes too. And they know that there's not a lot of people flying, so it doesn't cost them a lot to hold the middle seats. They also know that having happy flight attendants helps with their product. And so not furloughing the flight attendants is probably a great thing for what they're doing overall. It is a cost they're going to carry for some period of time, but they have the financial wherewithal, it seems, to be able to do that. They, like Southwest, who said they're not going to furlough anyone in 2020, we'll see if they hold to that, but I bet they will. They said they will, and they're, they usually stick to their promises. Um, we'll have to see sort of how these airlines feel by the spring or summer of 2021 when we see what's happening. Maybe by then we feel better about a vaccine or maybe a lot more people are traveling. Maybe a lot of people book summer 2021 vacations and everybody says, well, we feel good about all those decisions we made about blocking seats when we did and not furloughing when we when we could have, or maybe some thought we should. Um, or they may say, look, this is lasting even longer and maybe we need to hunker down a little more, and then we'll see what happens at that point. I hope the first answer is the right one, Seth. Yeah, let's not forget that Delta is the only major airline, the giant airlines I'm talking in the U.S., whose flight attendants are not unionized. And so here you have the unionized flight attendants facing furloughs, and Delta 
not furloughing its flight attendants. And don't forget, Delta has faced unionization efforts over the years. And although it might not say this word for word, it seems to be sending a message that, hey, look, all those people who are paying their union dues, what are they getting for that? Right. I think there's some of that going on here. Do you agree, Ben? And, and and how does that factor into Delta's calculation? Well, I think it probably they've they've done a lot of things to try to not allow most of their groups to I shouldn't say allow, not to allow, encourage a lot of their groups to join unions. There's a very old saying about unions that strong unions come from weak management, right? <laughs> and there's enough people who've been in the industry long enough at Delta who probably remember that phrase. And they have always thought about treating their people well, and they've always paid their people very well, and they've not given their employees a pay reason to join a union. And this may, may be another case where they say, look, you don't need a union supporting you and you don't have to pay a couple of percent of your wages to a union just to protect yourself from furloughs during tough times. Well, Ben, time next for a listener question. But first, Seth, we want to thank Seabury Capital Group for their support of this podcast. Seabury Capital is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime, and financial services and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision-makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. That's seabury, S-E-A-B-U-R-Y, capital.com. Time for our first listener question. David called in from Orange County, California. Hey, David. Hey, Seth and Ben, this is David, and I don't know if you saw, but a few days ago, uh, Spirit announced new service from John Wayne Airport here in Orange County, twice daily to Oakland, and once daily to Las Vegas. And I'm just interested in your thoughts on why they would do something like this. Those routes are pretty much owned by Southwest. Over the years, there have been a number of different carriers, including Delta and others, that have tried the uh, Santa Ana to Las Vegas route with very little... uh, uh, success. Know that none of those last very long, um, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on why Spirit would want to go head to head on South with Southwest on those. It's hard to imagine they're just wanting to bottom feed and and pick off the most price sensitive customers, especially when Southwest does those multiple times a day, and price sensitive sensitive customers can travel it off hours. But would love your thoughts on that. Uh, seemed interesting to me from uh, uh, news here at my hometown airport, and uh, would love to get your thoughts on it. Thanks. Bye-bye. David obviously gave that decision by spirit a lot of thought, a lot of great points there. What about that, Ben? A lot of great points, I agree. But, you know, Spirit and Southwest have competed in Florida and other places, Baltimore and other places before. So Spirit knows what it means to fly against Southwest. Spirit has been a carrier for a long time that has been about skimming in the sense of they don't go into a market and try to dominate it. They try to carry, you know, a percentage of the traffic that is most price sensitive. And they know that Southwest has been raising fares over time. And so they know what it's like to compete with Southwest. They used to compete with Southwest between Fort Lauderdale and Orlando and Southwest stopped serving that market. That was a while ago, but maybe they still remember that or are emboldened by that. 
my guess is they saw an opportunity in Orange County and said, where can we fly in some of the biggest markets where we can carry that percentage of the traffic that is most price sensitive, that maybe Southwest will walk away from that traffic because the price is so low. Spirit has been pretty good about picking the markets they serve. And they've also been good about pulling out of markets when they don't financially perform the way they expect. So while I think that they probably did a good job choosing these markets out of Orange County, I think we should watch this one closely and see if they're able to fill their little niche there or if Southwest is just going to stop on them there. Yeah. Spirit found out in late 2014 and really 2015 as airfares were plummeting, prevailing airfares plummeting with lower oil prices. It's actually harder to compete sometimes in a lower fare environment because prior to that, Spirit had gotten used to just being able to, this is when you were in Spirit, uh, attract customers based pretty much on price alone. Right, A lot of people flew Spirit, not because they loved flying Spirit, but because it was a lot cheaper than other, other airlines. And it's hard to be a lot cheaper than other airlines when other airlines just aren't that expensive. Do you think we're back in that environment where it's harder to be Spirit relatively? Well, it's clearly with a little bit harder in that everybody is charging lower fares now, right? Airlines are doing whatever they can to attract whatever traffic is willing to fly right now. It's not a normal operating environment. That said, Spirit still does have an operating cost advantage over Southwest that is fairly significant. So maybe they say, look, If it's going to be cheap fares, some people will take our flights at the cheap fares and we have a better chance of making money than Southwest on those cheap fares. So they may be thinking that they like United, like Southwest going into Miami. They got to think about where can we put our planes where we can attract some traffic in this environment. And they've obviously seen Orange County as a place where they think that could be true. Yeah. Well, up next, a different listener corrects me. And I mean... This is a pretty embarrassing mistake I made, at least in this crowd. Plus, how does an airport change its code? And a passenger complaint about Delta. Airlines Confidential will be right back. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports nationwide, moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com slash airlines. That's www.clearme.com slash airlines. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanta, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Uh, Time now to go back to the mailbag. Morgan, who I remember identified herself earlier this year as the friendly spreadsheet flight attendant girl, sent us an email with subject line, cross-check and all call. The body of that message, Southwest still calls out the doors over the PA. Cross-check complete. Thanks, Morgan. So, Ben, uh, Morgan, of course, is referring to what I said last week about we got into that geeky discussion about airlines that used to call out their doors. U.S. Airways would call out 101R when they were doing the cross check out loud. Flight attendants, of course, do that uh, over the intercom. 
but customers don't hear it on most airlines. And I said, U.S. Airways did it, then it merged with America West, and it no longer did it when they merged the uh, procedures. American didn't call out all the doors, but would say front doors, aft doors. Then they merged with U.S. Airways, run by the same people who would run America West mostly, and who and that went away. And, and, I, and I think I make the comment that pretty much no U.S. airline does it. But, oh, Morgan's pointing out here that uh, a little airline called Southwest, one of the biggest of all, does it. So I guess, Ben, that means I either need to fly Southwest more or pay it more attention when I fly Southwest. <laughs> AJ called in with a question. He lives in Greensboro, North Carolina, but he's originally from Rochester, New York. He has a question about his hometown airport. Hey, you guys. This is AJ from Greensboro, North Carolina. And I'm originally from Rochester, New York. So the uh, people up there are changing the airport's name from the Greater Rochester International Airport to the Frederick Douglass International Airport. So I was just wondering, what is the processes with the government and all of that to actually change the three-letter airport code, because I know right now currently in Rochester, New York, it's ROC, but let's just say for conversation's sake, they change it to FDI. What What is all entailed in making that type of change with the uh, city code? Thanks and have a great week. Thank you, AJ. Now, first of all, Ben, usually, and I realize AJ is just doing this for discussion purposes, when airlines change a name in that way, they don't change the code. I mean, I remember when famously Atlanta, for example, added Maynard Jackson's in front of its name. It's still ATL, others like that. So I think in this case, Rochester, even with adding Frederick Douglass's name to it, will remain ROC. I mean, first of all, just want to confirm with you that I'm probably right about that. Uh, But how do airlines go about changing their codes when they do, or airports rather? And, and, And really, do they ever? Because I'm thinking about it. Usually, it seems like when there's an airport with a different code in a city, usually it's because a a new airport opens, whether it's an an addition or a replacement for the old airport. Well, let me start by saying you're right. When airports add a name to the airport, it's usually a branding kind of thing. I mean, New Orleans became Louis Armstrong Airport, but they're still MSY. Right, Orange County became John for, Wayne. For Moisten still... Stockyards, yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. for Santa Ana, yeah, exactly. A, John Wayne Airport is still SNA, and right, Ronald Reagan Airport still DCA, right? And so, yeah. as they brand them with these popular names, they don't change the code. So, I don't think Rochester would even try to change their code, given that they're making this, you know, very you know, probably really good name change or or branding the airport with the way they are. Now, that said, I don't know of an airport that has chosen to change their code. I'm sure it must have happened maybe at some time. Maybe I'm not even sure of that. But the codes are, there's two groups in the world that assign airports. There's the what's called ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization. That's an arm of the United Nations. And that group ensures aviation regulations across different countries and continents align somewhat. They use four-digit codes. And the first digit of the four digits assigns to the country. And the United States is K. K. So, yeah. so Fort Lauderdale, which is FLL in ICAO, is KFLL. 
And then there's the IATA, which is an airline trade association that assigns the codes we all think about, the ROC for Rochester or the GSO for Greensboro or things like that. And so you have to apply to IATA, I would imagine, to say, I don't want to be ROC anymore. And the first question they'd ask you is, well, why the heck would you want to do that? (laughs) You've got a code that's the name of your city, basically, or aligns with your city and makes sense with your city. But if they really wanted to do it, they'd have to make sure that no airline in the world, including, you know, Africa, Asia, South America, everywhere, no airport, even without commercial service, has that code. I mean, I made the joke in your intro that about NFL. NFL yeah, tell the, us what is yeah, NFL is the code of a of a naval air station in Nevada. There's no commercial service there, but that airport has a code, NFL. And so they'd have to think about a code that went with their new name that nobody else had. Not that that's impossible, but with only three digits, they may not even find a code that they could use. And then my guess is they'd have to make sure that there's no new airport that is coming on that has already sort of reserved that or something like that. My guess is it would take a long time, take a lot of lawyers, and the new airport would even want to do it. That's my sense. I'm sure there has to be a way to get it done if the airport really wants to do it, but they may not get the code they want. And it would probably take a long time and they'd probably get a lot of resistance since think of all the airport, all the charts that have to be changed. Every pilot chart would have to be changed. All kinds of things would have to be changed when that code changes. And all Rochester wants to do is brand their airport and, you know, make people feel good about one of their hometown citizens. Right. And that's what they're doing. So they're going to stay ROC forever, I think. Akron Canton airport uh, if they want to change their code to nfl to honor the football hall of fame in canton too bad taken by an airport most people have never heard of well do you have a question for us you could call us 305-379-7429 and record a question we'll play it on the air you can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. Finer wine is next, but first we want to thank Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotel Connections is a Fortune 1000 company and procures more than 30 million rooms annually on behalf of their clients. Hotel Connections makes travel management easier and less expensive with their AI-powered booking applications, intelligent learning algorithms, customizable rules engines, analytics, and global negotiated rate programs. For travel logistics, hotels, transport, and technology solutions, visit hotelconnections.com. That's hotelconnections.com. And a reminder at the International Aviation Forecast Summit is coming October 11th through the 13th in beautiful and convenient Cincinnati. It's always one of the best, if not the best, airline events of the year. This year, it's also one of the only, if not the only, in-person airline conference. The event will, of course, comply with social distancing and mask requirements. Social distancing, but personal connections. If you can't be there in person, there's also a new virtual option. You can get the best rate on our website, airlinesconfidential.com. Scroll down, you'll see where to click through for information about the International Aviation Forecast Summit. Well, beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for Finer Wine. We listen to an actual customer complaint, and then we talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint. Yes, Seth. Julieth of Las Vegas is complaining about Delta 
that airline that a lot of people seem to love. <laughs> Juliet writes today. Not everybody, I, not Juliet. <laughs> not Juliet, that's right. Today I called Delta and spoke to Jennifer, one of the managers, regarding making changes to my reservation, which is supposed to have no fee for changes. Like we said earlier, most airlines aren't charging change fees right now. She told me I had to pay more for our tickets. The first customer service agent told me I had to pay $65 for each ticket, when the manager was on the line, she charged me $135 for each ticket. They just want to take more money for changes with COVID-19. I can't believe they're doing false advertisement of no fee for changes. Very disappointed with this company. Okay, Ben, no change fees, of course, doesn't mean that an airline can't charge you a difference in fare if the new fare is higher. They just don't also charge you that fee, that penalty, if you will, for making the change. What do you think? Fine or whine? Well, I want to think it's fine because if she was told 65 and then got charged 135, that's a problem. She should have paid 65, not 135. Now that said, I understand why this could happen and there's not we don't know everything here. Like this could be right. on an itinerary that still had change fees applied to it. It could be what you alluded to, which airlines call the ad collect, which is the difference in fare from the flight she bought to the one she wants to change to. And maybe when it was $65, she was going to change to one flight. When she said, well, I really want to take this other flight, maybe that flight was a little more expensive and that became the 135. So it's possible that she's complaining about Delta when in fact they maybe explained why it went from 65 to 135, but she didn't tell us in this complaint. If that's the case, this is a whine. But if in fact she should have paid $65 and got charged 135, then I'd say it's fine. My guess is there's more here than we know from just this complaint and that there was probably a legitimate reason she was told 65 and then 135. And my guess is she might have changed the flight she was changing to. That's my sense. What do you think, Seth? Yeah. And look, there's always more to these stories. We hear one side of the story when we read these complaints and it's for discussion purposes, right? I mean, in the end, these are things that people every day face and it, Sometimes the question's more interesting than the answer, right? And uh, and so that's what's going on here. But no, I agree. If if she was told 65 by an agent and then that was escalated to a manager because she was complaining about 65 and then, then she was told 135 for exactly the same thing, then that would indeed be fine. Uh, we'll never know the answer exactly, but uh, good, good to get a complaint in against Delta for all the times we get complaints in about and, the, uh, and a good complaint other. about change fees in exactly the time when change fees are changing in the industry right and going away for at least higher fair paying customers exactly well on final approach now it does it for airlines confidential this week please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatbacks and trade tables are in their upright and locked positions and remember we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza. Talk to you soon. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.